chapter 28. I've entitled the message, Driven Away, uh, Blown Away, and Time to Pray. Because in this chapter, what we'll see is Jacob uh, driven away from his family. And while he's driven away by life's circumstances, when he finds himself in a place that he is unsure and and struggling, he ends up getting a vision from the Lord. And so if you'll remember with me, uh, there was kind of this sibling warfare going on between Jacob and Esau. But it was only uh, punctuated even more uh, with his parents. Their parents also were kind of battling against each other. They were doing what none of you have ever done. They were playing favorites with your kids. And so as they were playing favorites with their kids, um, what they forgot is that God has plans for each one of their kids. And no matter what we as parents do, God's going to fulfill his plans. So we can either be in line with those plans or we can cause strife and try to fight those plans. And we saw that last week as Jacob um, was not the one that uh, Isaac wanted to bless. He wanted to bless Esau. He wanted to bless Esau because Esau was the manly man. He was the hairy man. He was the hunter. He made the savory meats. He was the son that would make the the awesome beef jerky or deer jerky. And so uh, obviously that's going to be the dad's favorite. But then there's the, the other son, Jacob, who was more of a homebody. He might be the one uh, caught watching uh, food preparation videos with his mom, much like my son Judah. You know, they, they want to, you know, he, he wanted to cook and he wanted to be at home and he was kind of soft and he wasn't hairy. He was, uh, you know, he might be as smooth skinned as a grape or a baby. And so um, that being said, he was mom's favorite. He was a mama's boy. Um, and so with that being the case, his mom instructs him, hey, you know what? Um, I remember that there was going to be a blessing upon you. The, the, the younger is going to serve the older. And that's what was said in the previous chapter to last week's chapter, that um, she said when she was pregnant, why is there strife within my womb? And the Lord revealed, because there's two nations in your womb, and they're going to fight one another. <laughs> but the older will actually be a servant to the younger which doesn't make any sense because the older always gets the double portion. The older always gets the blessing. The older always inherits the spiritual leadership of the family. And yet God chooses not according to the will of man, but he chooses according to his own divine purpose. And so he chooses Jacob. Now, if you remember the chapter, Jacob was a willing participant in deceiving his father who had lost his sight by this time. And you'd be like, well, why would God choose a deceiver in order to essentially inherit the blessing of leading the nation of Israel? Uh, Because God chooses, and his calling and his election are sure. Uh, If there's anybody in the Bible that God could pick that was perfect, he would pick them. But not one person that's ever been chosen by God has been qualified to be a servant of the Most High God. Not one. Not one person has ever experienced the ability except for Jesus, the Son of God, the only perfect human being. And so as we open up Genesis chapter 28, it says, Then Isaac called Jacob 
and he blessed him. And he charged him, and he said to him, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take yourself a wife from there of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. And then in verse 3, the blessing. May God Almighty bless you. May he make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may be an assembly of peoples and give you the blessing of Abraham. This is from Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 3. God revealed himself to Abraham and he blessed him. Verse 4 says, And give you the blessing of Abraham to you, to your descendants with you, that you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger, which God gave to Abraham. So Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram, to Laban the son of Bethuel the Syrian, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. So in chapter uh, 27, uh, God actually had told him, like, Jacob's going to be the one you bless. But then in chapter 27, Jacob schemes with his mom and, and basically pulls the rug over his dad's eyes, and he accidentally, Isaac accidentally blesses Jacob. Despite the fact that he preferred Esau, because he was deceived, he blessed the wrong son. But in that moment, he recognized that he blessed the one that God chose. And so in chapter 28, when he blesses Jacob, it's not on accident anymore. It's on purpose. He recognizes that he wasn't, he wasn't blessing according to the, willing, the will of God. And now he's blessing willingly, recognizing that no matter what man's plans are, God will direct man's steps. And so in verse 1 through 2, we see the instructions. He called Jacob. He blessed Jacob. He charged him or exhorted him. And then he spoke to him. So this is obviously different compared to the previous years of Jacob's life, where Isaac seemed to spend more time speaking into the life of Esau. He recognizes at this time, I need to instruct my younger son. And then he blesses him. But among the instructions, he says, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. We talked about this last time, that the daughters of Canaan were the descendants of Ham, the descendants of Ham's son, Canaan. And if you remember there in the table of nations, I think it's Genesis 6 or 7, I can't remember, uh, there was three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And there was a curse on the descendants of Canaan because God knows who's going to reject his counsel. But then there was a blessing upon the line of Shem. And Shem, his descendants were Eber, where we get the word Hebrew. And eventually we have the father of the faith, Abraham. He's a descendant. And so as we receive these descendants, the descendants that were in the land of Canaan, the daughters, were actually the descendants of Ham and Canaan. And so they were supposed to be different than the people of Canaan. So he wants him to go take a wife from the descendants of Shem. All that to say, in verse 5, we see Jacob's response to this. It says, Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram, to Laban the son of Bethuel the Syrian, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. Simply, he responds in obedience. He obeys. He leaves. 
He doesn't take a, a wife from the daughters of the Canaanites. But then in verse 6 through 7, we notice that Esau actually watches Jacob respond to their father. Verse 6 and 7, Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take himself a wife from there. And that as he blessed him, he gave him a charge saying, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Padan Aram. So verse 8 says, also Esau saw the daughters of Canaan did not please his father Isaac. So Esau went to Ishmael and took Mahalah, I can't say that, <laughs> Mahalath, the daughters of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebajoth, to be his wife in addition to the wives that he had. And so my note there in verse 8 through 9 is that Esau's bitter response was, marry a daughter of his fellow firstborn son who also did not inherit the blessing. See, Esau had something in common with Ishmael. Ishmael was born before Isaac, and yet he did not receive the blessing of his father or inherit the promises of God from his father. Isaac did. Isaac was the son of promise, but he was younger. So Esau is in the same shoes as Ishmael. Wait a minute. I was born first. I'm supposed to get the blessing. So I interpreted this when I made my notes that this was Esau's bitter response. But I'm, I'm about to tell you that I, I made a boo-boo. I don't believe that this was Esau's response anymore, his bitter response. I think what he saw was God blessed, excuse me, Isaac blessed Jacob. Jacob did not take a wife from the Canaanites. Esau had already taken wives from the Canaanites, the sons of Heth. So when he saw this, he said, fine, I won't take a, a wife. I'll take another wife from the sons outside of the Canaanites, a descendant of Ishmael. He was trying to do something that he knew his father would be proud of. But in so doing, he multiplied wives. So he did the right thing. He just did it the wrong way. All that to say, I want you to notice that in the life of Esau, who we'll later call the Edomites, his descendants, he has this desire to be blessed by his father. We talked about this two weeks ago. Esau, even though he had rebelled against his parents and was driving them nuts, he still had this deep down desire in his heart to be blessed by his father. He wanted his parents' approval. So he's still trying to take steps to gain approval from his parents. And I will tell you, as someone who has been embittered by my parents in the past, and I'm still working through it, when they tell me that they're proud of me, even though we don't agree on everything, it blesses my socks off. Your children desire to have your approval, whether you agree with what they're doing or not. And there are some things that as parents you should not approve of in your, in your kids' lives. But if there's even a glimpse, if there's even a small fraction of minute thing that you are proud of with your kids, do them and yourself a favor and vocalize it. We do not praise our children enough for the things that really matter. And we spend the bulk of our time telling them how proud we are of things that are really shallow. So if they try to take a step to honor the Lord as Christian parents, 
when your children try to take the, 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 the tiniest move towards pleasing the Lord, praise them for that thing. It's going to be like nitrous oxide to their faith. It just, just throw a little gasoline on the fire. If there's just a flickering flame and the, their whole life is jacked up and it, you feel like it's too late, but they've taken one step, tell them you're proud of them. I mean, it, it's just going to change everything. Anyway, didn't have that in my notes. It just was on my mind. So Jacob's journeying back to Haran. That's where Abraham initially came from. So that's a long journey. So along the journey, he's going to experience some things. But before we get there, what sent Jacob away? Let's think about this for a moment. Uh, number one, his mom was afraid that his older brother was going to kill him. So he said, she said, get out of town. Your brother's comforting himself with the fact that he can kill you one day. Not great. Um, so protection. He's, he's got the fear of death. Um, his brother vowed to kill him in the last chapter in verse 41. Uh, number two, what sent him away? Obedience. He's obeying his mother and father. Uh, obedience, by the way, to his mother in the past got him in trouble. That's why his brother wants to kill him in the first place. But he's obeying his mother and father, and he's going to a place to get a bride where they told him to go. Verse 43 of chapter 27. Uh, and then also to obtain a bride. He's told to get a bride from Padanaram, or in other words, Haran, in verse 1 and 2. That's what sent him away. So there's fear. There's expectation. Uh, there's, un, there's excitement. Uh, he's perhaps unsettled. I don't know if you guys remember the first time that you traveled more than an hour from your parents' house, but I do. And I remember thinking, I hope these MapQuest directions make sense because you couldn't put them on your phone. And some of you had the Rand McNally, you know, open up the and not be able to see where you're going map, you know, unfolding it, trying to fold it back. But for me, I had the MapQuest directions and I was so afraid I was going to get lost or the car was going to break down. But there was excitement. Uh, and, and I remember the first time I stayed in a hotel. And here we have um, Jacob. He, he's going off on his own. He's striking out. He's, he's going to a place he's never been before. Uh, he was the sheltered one of the two. He didn't go out to the field and hunt. He was the one that, he was a homebody. And so as he's headed out, Maybe some of you have sent out college students or know people or have thought about what it's going to be like to send out college students or you remember going to college or, or going to a different town for a job. Um, it's kind of scary and it's exciting. And, and, and maybe the reasons you left were because you had fears. And, but, but all that said, Jacob is kind of afraid and he's going out on his own and he doesn't have any protection. And, um, but it says there in verse 10, Jacob went out from Beersheba, the house, uh, the place of the oath, the well of the oath, where his father and mother were. And he went towards Haran. And so he came to a certain place and he stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and he put it at his head and he lay down in that place to sleep. So I'm assuming he didn't take enough stuff to sleep. It says that he laid his head on a stone. Uh, Perhaps he's finding himself between a rock and a hard place, literally. His brother wants to kill him. Uh, there's no place for him to stay in an inn. And so he's found this place to rest. And it says that he stopped there in this certain place simply because it got dark. 
He he wasn't going to travel at night. He didn't have headlights. And so then verse 12 says, He dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven, and there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also, your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north and the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. So Jacob came to a certain place. He laid down to rest simply because it was dark. But God placed him in this certain place because he was getting ready to do something else. This wasn't just a Hotel Six. This wasn't just a place to sleep. This was a place for God to, as as Jacob would close his eyes, God's going to open his spiritual eyes. Have you ever been taken somewhere by circumstances that were out of your hands? And when you arrived there, you thought you were there for one thing, and God had brought you there for a totally different thing. That's what God does, by the way. He's intricately involved in your comings and goings. He places you in locations and spaces and in families and in conversations on purpose so that he can reveal his greater purpose to you. So what do you think his sleep was like, by the way? It's almost camping season, right? And some of you still like to camp on the ground. And for those of you that say that, I was once one of those, but now I like taking my blankie and my pillow and a mattress and something with wheels under it to sleep in. Um, And so, uh, but with that being said, sleeping on the ground is painful enough, but I've never used a rock as a pillow. So you know it was unrestful. But then also the reason he's here is because he's traveling. He's on his way somewhere. Perhaps he's thinking about the fact that he doesn't know where he is and he doesn't know who's around. Uh, Maybe he's hearing uh, a coyote in the distance. Maybe while he's sleeping there, he's having bad dreams because his brother wants to kill him. You know, uh, maybe there's unrest because of all the circumstances. And yet in the midst of these circumstances, Jacob's dream is a vision from God. God reveals to him a ladder. And by the way, God does reveal himself to us in dreams and visions. Uh, Now, sometimes your dreams and visions are just because you ate a bad burrito way too late. Or you had one more gas station hot dog, and it was a bad decision. But all that to be said, God has brought him to this place to reveal to him something about his current circumstances, but also about his greater purpose in the circumstances. And I will point out the fact that many times God will separate us from our day-to-day life. Maybe um, he'll separate you from your uh, routine. Uh, 2020 did that, right? For many of us, we had not been separated from our routine for forever. 
And though we hate our rut, we really love our rut because we like routine. But God will separate us from our routine in order to clear away all the distractions so that we can get a glimpse, a greater glimpse of what he's doing and preparing us for. And when he does this, it always gives us better perspective of where we truly stand. Turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings and chapter 6. And there we meet up with the life of Elisha. Not Elijah, but the prophet after him that got the double portion, Elisha. And if you remember, there was a time where these, the Syrians were actually uh, trying to defeat the Israelite nation. And it says that at this time, the king of Assyria was making war against Israel, verse 8. And he consulted with his servants saying, my camp will be in such and such a place. So he's making plans and sending out his, his army. And the man of God sent to the king of Israel saying, beware that you do not pass this place. For the Syrians are coming down there. And then the king of Israel sent someone to the place of which the man of God had told him. And thus he warned him, and he was watchful there, not just once or twice. So here's the strategy. The king of Syria sends his army to a place to attack the Israelites. The man of God, Elisha, isn't listening in on the conversation. God's speaking to Elisha, and then Elisha is able to Warn the Israelite king, hey, don't go to this place because that's where they're going to attack you. And so all throughout this, it's like watching a game of chess. And every time a move is made, it's like the person they're playing against moves before they even move to get into position to attack. And so with that being said, the Syrian king all of a sudden starts getting upset because every time he moves his army, his plans are thwarted. And so in the midst of that, the king of Assyria, or Syria finally goes, what's going on? Somebody in our camp is giving intel to the enemy because there's no way that they just know every time where we're going to move. They know our moves. They've seen our plan. They've watched the tape. They're strategizing against something they've never seen before. How is this so unless somebody from our camp is giving up our next move? Somebody is, uh, somebody is a, what is, what's the idea? Arnold. A traitor. Thank you. And so with that being the case, um, he says, what's going on? And so finally, one of his servants goes, it's, it's not somebody from our camp. They have this prophet, Elisha, and he knows the conversations that you have, even in your bedroom. He knows what's, somehow he knows our plans before we ever push them forward. And so with that being the case, they, the king of Syria is furious. He goes, well, let's kill that guy. If he's the one giving up our plans, let's go kill him. And so he takes his armies and he goes to find Elisha. Now, <laughs> as the army of Syria is approaching where Elisha is, it says there in verse 13, go and see where he is that I may send and get him. And I was told, and it was told him, surely Elisha is in Dothan. So in verse 14, it says, therefore, he sent horses and chariots and a great army there. And they came by night and they surrounded the city of Dothan. Now, when the servant of the man of God, 
In other words, Elisha's servant arose early and went out. There was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he answered and he said, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And at this moment, Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open my servant's eyes that he may see. And then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So when the Syrians came down to him, Elisha prayed the Lord and said, Strike this people, I pray, with blindness. And he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. Now Elisha said to them, This is not the way. In other words, he went out, he, he got down from his tower where he was safe. He went out to the army that was there to attack him. And he said, You guys are in the wrong spot. It was like a Jedi mind trick. This is not the people you want to kill. And then he led them away from where they were going to attack. And so what I'm trying to point out in this story is that Jacob is in, he's afraid. He's like the servant of Elisha. He's like, oh gosh, I'm going to die. What's going to happen? What are we going to do? And just at that moment, the prophet of the Lord says, hey, you, you don't understand. The, the angels of the living God The armies of the living God are surrounding it. They're encamped about us. They're going to take... This little army of Syria is nothing. God's army is way greater, and he's protecting us. And so in the same way, Jacob is fearing for his life. He's running. He's headed to go get a bride, but he's afraid. And as he's in this place that he's going to name Bethel, house of God, God's revealing to him that I know you're afraid, but I'm going to be with you. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to protect you. And guess what? After you've gone and got your bride, I'm going to bring you back to this place safe and sound. He's revealing this greater plan too, because as he shows him this ladder, he's showing him, and this is a sculpture that I saw in Jerusalem. He's showing him this, this way to and from heaven. A ladder, if you will. Maybe it's where Led Zeppelin came up with the the song, Stairway to Heaven, right? But the stairway to heaven is is a pathway that the angels are taking to and fro. Notice that it says that they're ascending and descending, almost as if the place that they do their work is here, not in heaven. That the angels are at work here on earth. In Hebrews chapter 1, somewhere between verse 13 and 14, it says that are not all angels ministering or servants to those who inherit salvation? Do you know that angels' primary job is to serve those who inherit salvation, you and I? So that God, those that God has saved, he's also protecting using his legions of angels. So I have there for you uh, this picture, and I think I just went the wrong way. And, and what's interesting is that I saw this ladder in a food court in an outdoor mall in Jerusalem. So it's not like it was in a religious place, and it wasn't in a museum. This was a sculpture that's so intricately wound into the Jewish culture 
that an artist was inspired by it and wanted to build it. And, and now there it was sitting. And you see him laying below this ladder where angels are ascending and descending. But what is God showing Jacob? See, this, this sculpture is built in the middle of a food court. And the people that are looking at it are thinking about their heritage. But they don't realize that this ladder is actually a symbol about Jesus the Messiah, whom most of them reject as their Messiah. So even in their culture today... So what's God showing Jacob? He he was sent away from his father's house, but the God of his father is still with him. He says to him, I am with you. I will keep you. I will bring you back. I will not leave you until I'm finished fulfilling these things. But what I want to take you to is John chapter one. Because even Jesus referred to this ladder. You might say that, we are actually Latter-day Saints, uh, but just not like, the, not like the cult, Latter-day Saints, but the Latter, anyway. Jacob was a Latter-day Saint. But as he's laying under this ladder, what we, he may not have realized is that um, Jesus refers to this ladder in uh, John chapter 1, verse 51, where he said to him, he was speaking to Nathaniel, and Nathaniel, by the way, was blown away by Jesus because as Jesus walked up to Nathaniel, having never met him, he said to him, "Behold, an Israelite, indeed, in whom is no deceit," which is quite the opposite of Jacob. And Nathaniel said to him, "How do you know me?" And Jesus answered and said to him, "Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you." Speaking to his omnipresence or his omniscience, uh, Jesus knew Philip while he was sitting underneath a fig, fig tree. And Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these, Nathanael. And he said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you hereafter, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon, not a ladder, but the ladder, the Son of Man. This is, refer- this is the specific phrase mentioned in the vision that we have in Genesis 28. And so this is Jesus revealed to Jacob. And so as we look at this, we see that salvation is the ladder. And in first, excuse me, second Timothy chapter one, verse five, it says that there is one God and one mediator between God and man. There's one bridge across the gap between sinful human beings and a holy God. And that is the man, Christ Jesus. And so here we see that salvation is something that to, to, the, to the physical eye looks so common or normal that you could actually miss it. That Jesus, when he walked the face of the earth, didn't look like Superman, come to save mankind, but he looked like a ladder. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I was cleaning my garage yesterday And the first thing I notice when I walk in my garage is not the ladder. There's tools everywhere. 
but in the garage, the ladder is the clearest picture of Jesus. And that's how he revealed himself to Jacob. So don't miss it. So Jacob, in response in verse 16, awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So then Jacob rose early in the morning. He took the stone that he had put at his head. He set it as a pillar. Now, part of me wonders if this stone was meant to protect him. If maybe he just laid a big stone next to him so that if he woke up in the middle of the night, he could reach into his drawer and grab his uh, stone, his Glock rock, and throw it at the perpetrator or the animal. Um, That just came to me. I just wonder if maybe that was something that he laid by his head to protect himself if something were to happen. But it says here that this, this rock that he used as his protection, he sets it up instead as a way to worship God as an altar, a rock of remembrance. You ever read or sing old hymns, that word Ebenezer? It's a rock of remembrance, a place to come back to and remember something that God revealed to you. And so he stands up the stone, he set it up as a pillar, and he poured oil on top of it, and he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of that city had been Luz, previously, which means light. So then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and keep me in this way that I'm going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set as a pillar, shall be be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. So Jacob is worshiping here. That's what's happening. He testifies what he's seen. He builds an altar. He renames the place Bethel, house of God. And then he he basically receives the promise of God. And then he makes a vow to God. Now God's promised already, I am going to do these things. But then Jacob says, well, if you do these things, You said you're going to, but if you do, uh, then you'll be my God, and I'll give you a tenth of all my increase. Everything you provide for me, I'll give you a tenth of it, a tithe. So he's grabbing what God promised. It was an offer that he couldn't pass up. But the question I have for you is, where does God dwell? Does God dwell in a rock that we set up, a pillar? Does God dwell in even a building? In 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27, Solomon built probably the most beautiful temple that Israel ever had aside from Herod's temple. But when he got done dedicating it and praying, he prayed this about the temple he had just built. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built But I believe that when we first come to know the Lord, our idea of him is small. God's my provider. God's my protector. God's the one who saved me. 
And then as we grow in our understanding and in the knowledge of who he actually is and how big, how great, how powerful he is, slowly we'll see this in the nation of Israel. They'll start to build bigger temples. They'll start to build bigger gathering places. And as they build bigger gathering places, it's really just a greater sign of how they understand how much greater he is than they once thought. So God offers Jacob an offer that he can't refuse. But what I want to point out about this offer is Jacob is receiving it. Jacob was such a scheming man, I have there for you, that even his vow to God was basically a bargain with God rather than a loving consecration. He didn't say, oh, wow, God, you're so good. Let me give you my life. What he said was, if this, and if you do this, and if you do this, it's like he's writing out a contract as if he's going to hold God to it. But he says, if you'll protect me, if you'll be present with me, if you'll provide for me, if you give me the possession of the land, if you return me to the land in peace, then I will do. Here's what I'll do. I'll give you a tenth of all that you give me. Now, what I want to point out about this is this is infantile faith. This is just revealing Jacob's immaturity in his faith. And I say that as a man who prayed this prayer. I read this passage in probably 2005 or 2006. I was going to the University of Missouri Rolla. College chewed me up and spit me out. It it shook me up. It uh, showed me how impure I was. It it gave me opportunities to sin, and I took them by the horns and went for it. But at the end of college, when I was in my last semester, uh, I was going to be graduating in December because I had to retake classes and retake classes and retake classes. And then I graduated in December because I wasn't with anybody I started with. But in the midst of that, I had a buddy that had me reading the Bible. He Uh, I I just was broken. I was looking for answers and I started reading scripture and he was like, I'm going to read the whole Bible this year. And I was like, that's, that actually makes a lot of sense. Why would you just read portions of it? And this was before I ever, ever started going to a church that taught the whole Bible. So as I'm reading it, I'm reading Genesis and I don't remember what happened, but I was in my apartment and I knew I was more than likely going to have to take another semester. And I prayed a prayer of faith out of desperation and out of fear and out of brokenness, perhaps like Jacob here. And I said, God, I I know that I don't deserve the least of your kindness. I know that I'm really jacked up right now. But here's the deal. I just want to get out of college and move on with life. I know my life's not right here, and I want to get it right but I don't have time. My classes are consuming me. Uh, I'm afraid of what my family will think if I fail. And I just want to move on. I want to start a family. If, If you will do this for me, if you will take care of this, if you'll help me get my degree, if you'll help me to get home and help me to get a job, if you'll, if, 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 then I'll give you my life. I'll do whatever you want me to do. And though I would probably be very quick to go, that's not a very godly prayer, and that's kind of selfish, I will say to you that personally, 
God's answered a lot of my selfish prayers. He's given me a lot of grace. And he honored that prayer. And I will tell you, just like Jacob, I didn't deserve him to do squat for me. But he honored that prayer. And later on, I realized it was a really selfish prayer. And it caused me to worship him and have joy even more. Because faltering faith and imperfect obedience and brokenness and a contrite spirit, God has yet to deny. And I'm living proof of that. He did all the things I asked him to, and then I still didn't serve him. And then he sent people in my life to hunt me down and to make that prayer fulfilled. And so, just like that, we're going to watch that in the life of Jacob. Jacob's imperfect faith and his immature faith, God's going to honor it. Because God chooses who he's going to uh, bless. So what about us? What if we instead, instead of praying, if you'll do this, then I'll do this. Instead, we pray, Lord, because you promised to be with me and to keep me and to provide for all my needs and to bring me back to the land which you swore to give to my fathers and to me, I'm simply going to give myself to you, Lord. Because you promised, not because you did it. Because you promised to do this, if I'll honor you, uh, I'll respond and give you my life. And in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, the Apostle Paul writes this. <clears throat> he says, I'm confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all because I have you in my heart. He says, God is the one who is faithful, who called you, who also will bring it to pass and make you mature. And then in 2 Timothy, the apostle Paul writes to Timothy in chapter 1, in verse 8, He says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. And then he says, for these reasons, the power of God who has saved us, just like he saved Jacob from death, who has called us with a holy calling, just like he's called Jacob before he was born, not according to our works. Uh, Jacob obviously didn't have any works but according to his own purpose and grace, unmerited favor, which was given to us in Christ before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That's what he's brought to light to Jacob this morning. Jacob's laying beneath a a ladder and he's afraid to death. And God reveals to him that he's abolished death and and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He's revealed Jesus, the ladder. And then he says, to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. For this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed For I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I've committed to him until that day. 
So here's the deal. I've been asked this question recently because of what's going on with, uh, what is it, HR5 or, you know, the Equality Act. And somebody was asking me just yesterday, like, what does that mean for us as a church? What does that mean for you as a pastor? What does that mean for us as Christians? And to be fully honest, I haven't read the bill. I haven't read the act. I haven't read it, not because I don't care, but because it doesn't, no matter what the law says I can or cannot do or will be allowed or won't be allowed to do, I'm going to continue to proclaim the truth. We're going to continue to believe what the Bible says it's true. And the reality is I have to obey God rather than men. So if that means that whether it's a, a wedding that I have to say yes or no to, or whether that means uh, somebody can serve in the church based on what the law says versus what Scripture says makes somebody uh, able to serve in the church, then that's what I have to go with. And what what is crazy is that as Jacob here is saying to the Lord, uh, if you'll do these things, then I'll give you the first fruits. We have to say, since God has promised that he will provide and protect and take care of me, I'm going to fully give my life to him. And whatever he asks me to do, I'm going to do it with gusto because I want to please my father who has done so much for me. And so uh, I share that as a devotional thought because the question becomes, what are the things in your life that God has promised to you that he has not yet done yet, and because he hasn't done them yet, you're holding back from him. Are there things in your life that God's not answered your prayers or fulfilled your whim or your heart's desire, and so because of that, you're not giving your all to him? Maybe there's things and maybe there's not. But if your service to God is conditional upon him doing everything that you think that he should do, then you've made yourself God instead of him. And that's a scary spot to be in. Because you, being your own God, can't be the latter. (laughs) You're lost. Jacob was raised in a home that knew God his whole life. And at this point, as he's leaving the land, he's, many believe, in his 60s or 70s, As he's going to get a bride, guess what? That's his first real encounter personally with God. So if there's anybody in here today who has understood that God loves him and heard all the mumbo-jumbo but never had a personal interaction or encounter with God, I would encourage you this morning, ask him to reveal himself to you. He wants to. Be open to that. So as we take communion this morning, I'm going to have the ushers come up and pass out communion, but this is a time to consecrate ourselves once again. Stop saying, if God will do these things, then I'll give my life to him, and start saying, since God's promised to be these things to me, and has proved his love, and laying down his life for me personally, I'm going to worship him, and I'm going to give him my all, because no one else has ever done that for me. And if these promises are true, I'm a fool not to take full advantage of them. So, Father, as we get ready for our time of communion, we recognize that no matter what we offer you, it's imperfect and it's incomplete. And so as the ushers come up and they start handing out communion, Lord, help us to take this, these moments to consider the circumstances that have brought us to today 
And as we consider those circumstances, Lord, would you reveal your son Jesus because you've brought us here and you want to open our eyes to see that the armies that are with us, the God who is with us is greater than the circumstances that surround us. And your ability to save to the uttermost is beyond our capacity even to understand at this moment. But Lord, I'm asking that for each person here, you would reveal the latter to them personally in terms they can understand. So Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he paid it all for our sin. We thank you that you love us and you're patient with us even though we continue imperfectly. And Father, we want to understand you more. We want to see the greater purpose. So Father, reveal it to us and make sense of the circumstances so that we will have great joy as we trust you in the moment where it's not all worked out yet. In Jesus' name, amen.